welcome to Football with Grant Wall, special U.S. Women's National Team Olympics edition with co-host Christine Cupo. Thanks so much for joining us. The U.S. has just lost to Canada 1-0 in the Olympic semifinals. The U.S. can do no better than bronze. For Canada, it's the first win over the U.S. since 2001, ending a 36-game winless streak. They picked a pretty good time to do it. Christine, how are you? Um, Waiting to wake up from this nap. It's real bad. This isn't real, right? (laughs) Like This is is just my shoddy sleep between 2 and 4 a.m. And I can't wait to wake up and see the U.S. women play and win. Like expected, always. (laughs) This is the part of the show where it's all been a dream sequence and and that game didn't just happen. Um, What a bizarre tournament for the U.S. What a bizarre game where it's not like, I mean, first give credit to Canada here. They've advanced to the gold medal game. They are going to win gold or silver. Um, Didn't create chances really, but they got a penalty in kind of a freak situation uh, in the second half and converted it. Um, And the U.S. once again does not score a goal. How many games in this tournament did they not score a goal? This was the third one. We're we're just not used to seeing a, a, a U.S. team that can't score goals. They've been out of sorts the whole tournament. Before we go any further, we should talk about the penalty. Tierna Davidson... Uh, yeah, good old VAR. VAR. <laughs> what do you think? Friend, foe. I don't. I don't know. I mean, me personally, and this isn't just like I, I feel like they otherwise called things kind of loosely that probably could have slid and wouldn't have been an event. But um, unfortunately, as you mentioned, this is just sort of like one blip in in a very anticlimactic game in a very out-of-body experience type tournament for the U.S. women's team. And it's not it's not Tierna's fault um, by any means. And she's probably going to catch some flack because, like, that's just how things go. But um, the luck of the draw here, and they managed to convert. And uh, otherwise, <laughs> we went so long without even a shot that it just... <laughs> you're begging for something to happen. Just not that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that. Can we take that back? What's crazy about just the way that penalty happened was Davidson did not appear to even be aware that the Canadian player Rose was around her. And it still hits her on the follow through. She, you know, Rose sort of initiated herself into that equation and so there's a just a feeling if you're a u.s fan of like that's not fair and sometimes this sport just isn't fair or just and that is an occasion and the u.s had some shots on goal more than canada did but nothing that really all in yeah all in we didn't deserve we didn't deserve to win We didn't deserve to win probably any of the last few games. Um, We did, um, despite all logic, reason, and otherwise playing style. Um, And so a bit of luck certainly came into play. 
but what we did today didn't it didn't warrant a win still hoped for it because i mean we're selfish and that's what we're used to right like the u.s women's national team drags our spirits up typically you wait for the u.s men's team to kind of let us down and then they balance each other out somehow um that we continue to function but that isn't what we got today um we got a very big spoonful of reality um in a lot of ways and it's going to be um, interesting to see how we move forward from here, knowing that, you know, we do have a lot of players who are on the more senior side that likely um, won't see another Olympics, that we don't know where we go from here. It's going to be a rebuild or restructuring. And we certainly have the talent in the women's pool, but how we utilize it going forward will be huge for us. Um, I, I think that a lot of us kind of wanted to see um lynn williams stay on today maybe see her and press together to see what they could do which i feel like is like a monster combo so you know wh why the heck not like what i get it it's an extremely like high stakes game but <clears throat> by the time we realize that we've gotten neither shots off nor anything of any uh semblance of series of passes beyond that of possibly two which is abysmal to begin with you kind of have to reach that rationalization, I think, of like, what what do we have to lose, really, um, on behalf of Vlatko? We're going to talk about Vlatko in this uh, podcast because we have mailbag questions. A lot of those are related to him uh, in the direction of this U.S. team now moving forward. This particular game, I would also add, I agree with like what you're saying about Williams and press I, I would have liked to see sam mewis come on earlier than she did i was kind of hoping she would to start the second half her absence was pretty glaring uh she ends up not coming on until the u.s was already down i think um too late for me um Alyssa nair felt terrible for has to go off injured in the first half of this game after hyper extending her knee or maybe worse who knows i hope she's okay um, and then trying to stay on and NBC showed the replay of the injury like way too many times. Um, as they are apt to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, AD French comes I know. on. Yeah, I also feel bad for AD French because, you know, like it's her first appearance in this tournament and you get thrown into this, which is just oof. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, like, are, am I going to wonder if Nair, a healthy Nair could have saved that penalty? Yeah, sure. You know, um, so just a, a lot of a lot of bad uh, for the U.S. in, in this game. But um, I, I do want to talk Vladko Andonovsky. Um, this was his first major tournament coaching the U.S. Almost perfect in the the 24 games or so that he had heading into this tournament and gave no indication of the kind of lackluster performance we were actually going to see from the U.S. in the Olympics. Um, and, you know, this question, mailbag question from Josh Taylor, pretty representative of what we're getting here. Do you think Vladko is on the hot seat now after this Olympic performance? And Vladko knew the 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 gig when he got it that the expectation is to win to win major tournaments and if you don't do that you're going to be on the hot seat now it's interesting when i go back four or sorry five years ago 
Jill Ellis had already won a World Cup in 2015 when the U.S. underperformed under her at that Olympics. She kept her job, made changes, and the U.S. came back and won the next World Cup in 2019. She had a little more earned credit having won a World Cup. Flacco doesn't have that. And so I am very curious now to see what U.S. soccer does with another World Cup two years away. Um, I also think there's a big difference between the 2016 Olympic exit and this one in that the game the U.S. went out on in 2016 was sort of an outlier. They performed pretty well, I thought, otherwise in that tournament. In this tournament, I thought the U.S., kind of stunk the whole time (laughs) yeah contextually this game was on par with their prior performances this tournament so yeah to your point far more the rule than the exception at least in this sort of bizarro time capsule that we've got running here um for this olympics uh not a great feeling at all um I don't know. I understand the forgiveness for Jill Ellis, but I feel like we forgave a lot with her that we didn't realize we were at the time. Um, That was only in hindsight. Um, I think I have a bit of um, grace to lend Vlaco because I think that, yes, there was the, the unbeaten streak that he had going for him, but that also kind of speaks to like how how were they tested in sort of like the larger more important i.e this right um where he's notoriously overprepared, overstudied and i don't know if some of this was him overthinking um coming out in, on sort of like the biggest stage we've had in a while with this team Um, or it was the combination of just like poor performance and like perfect storm of just awful, which seems to be the case because even Rapino and posts sort of always ever so, um, gracious in her willingness to remain accountable and just sort of say plainly, like we, we didn't perform or, um, you know, we're disappointed, et cetera, which is fair. And I appreciate the honesty, but it seems like a lot of things went wrong here. With that being said, I, I don't think that I'm so quick to pull the trigger on sort of like dragging Vlaco out into the square for like a public flogging. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting in my job as a writer, I have six times in my career written columns saying that somebody should be fired. <laughs> And I'm actually six for six. Every single time that person has subsequently been fired. Not saying that it was just me. Like sometimes there were other people calling for the firing as well. Are you the big jinx, Grant? Or are you the uh, catalyst? (laughs) Are you putting it into the universe? (laughs) So the the list of names is actually interesting. It's uh, Jurgen Klinsmann, Carlos Cordero, Sunil Gulati, wasn't fired, but he didn't run again for U.S. soccer president. Doug Logan, the MLS commissioner back in the late 90s. Um, I'm sure there was a couple of others. Anyway, um, and if I, I, I don't have a writing platform this very second. I will very soon and have a nice <laughs> announcement to make. So I don't have to write that column, but I do have a podcast platform. And 
if I'm being honest, I think Flacco might get fired here. I, I'm, not as, I'm not certain about it. I think the chances are better than 50-50. Um, and, I, and I'm saying that because I think what U.S. soccer will note here is the, the, the poor performance was not isolated to one game. It was essentially this entire tournament where this team did not look like itself. And whenever that's happened, even in non-major tournaments, Tom Sermani got fired after um, the Algarve Cup, which is not a major tournament, but the U.S. just didn't look like itself under him. And if you do this in a major tournament, I don't think you're going to keep the job. And, and so... That is my guess about what will happen, but this is also a decision that in the end is likely going to be made mostly by uh, Kate Markgraf, right. um, who hired Latko Andonovsky. Okay, so you get to get your dream pick for next U.S. women's team manager. Who do you pick? Oof. Ay, ay, ay. You're putting me on the spot here, and I should have a better answer for you. Like, <laughs> um, you mean at at 6.30 a.m. unprepared, you don't have your, like, wish list for U.S. Women's National Team Managers? How dare you? Am I the only one with, like, a vision board? No, I'm kidding. I haven't even given it any consideration because I'm still pulling for Vlatko. I mean, in, in Vlatko, by the way, and I, I say this, like, he's been on this podcast but, you know, recently, like, he's just a, a tremendously nice guy. And, he and, is. But, and that's the thing is, like, you know that the team love him. And so... I don't know what exactly has gone so awry here. That's the frustrating part. Yeah. How do you fix all of that? Like the, this last game against Canada was so uneventful. Right. That it's okay. You're not really passing in other games. It was like, okay, the midfield, no. Okay. The defense, the, you know, there were certain things you could sort of isolate and, and be like, okay, that's it. But, now they've done this over five matches. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> to answer your question, by the way, since my caffeine's just starting to kick in, Emma Hayes, the Chelsea manager, Ooh, I think, who okay. has a, a U.S. Okay. background, I think would be a good call. Um, Laura Harvey, who uh, just took the job up in Seattle, um, who has experience in U.S. soccer, I think would be a good call. Um, I think there's options out there um, that I'd like to see, but... If I if I were a betting man, I think Black is going to get fired, um, and and we'll see if I actually get one wrong here. But I'm uh, stubborn. I'm I'm going to say no and try to go burn sage later, and we'll see if we can <laughs> say a few novenas in Vlaco's favor. Um, it's a shame. It really is. I mean, obviously, I'm disappointed. I'm sure we're all collectively disappointed. Um, never expected to get bounced from this tournament by Canada. I actually went into this feeling fairly confident that it would be an interesting game is how I would label it. And it wasn't even that. No. Um, uh, <laughs> kind of at a loss, um, deeply saddened about just the realization that, you know, as Rapino said, like this is closer to the end for a lot of them than the beginning. And like that just makes me so incredibly sad. I well, can't even begin. Like I, I get it. It's it's the inevitable. We are not shocked. Like Carly just turned thirty nine. Like everybody's heading that in that direction more so. And um, 
I don't know, like this is this has been our team, right? Like they're very much like our extended family because it's been fairly consistent um, that I just I don't know. I'm said for them, said for us, said for all of it. Just stink. Yeah. And and I think when you go out this way. And I know they're not out. They're going to play for the bronze medal, and I expect them to. Oh my god! To Can you imagine if they guns don't come out with bronze? I will absolutely dig myself a hole and lay in it. <laughs> but I will say this: when you <laughs> when you when you underperform like this in a in a major tournament, this increases the chances that the oldest players will not be kept around, whoever the coach is for the next two years before this next World Cup. This increases the chances of more and more young players being introduced over that time because if, if those older players had actually won this tournament, they would have had more leverage to stick around. And right. they would have, most of them and would I think have wanted to stick around. that's been the pattern, right? Like we've replicated, it's been formulaic, it's worked. There's no reason to actually change it all that much. Um, and now we're going to start to feel that pressure because it's also just on the world stage, all of these programs, the gaps are closing. We're losing our sort of like head start that we had as being this like sort of dominant, like powerhouse of a team um, on an international stage. It It's going to be sobering. Um, there's going to be a lot of hard work that has to go into it. But um, if we get more beautiful ball out of it, um, I'll take it. It just is going to be a little bit hard to palate, I think, for all of us collectively for a while. We're very used to what we've had. It's kind of like some of the super clubs that we support. Like you have this like winning legacy and you expect no different. And so you are willing to tolerate far less in terms of performance or underperforming. Um, we've we've been spoiled. The summer of soccer continues on Paramount Plus. Stream over 2,000 soccer matches a year from around the world. That's all the heart pounding drama from CBS Sports, including UEFA Champions League, Europa League, Italy's Serie A, Argentina's Primera División, the Brasileirao, the NWSL, the Asian Football Confederation and the CONCACAF qualifiers, featuring the stars from the U.S. and Mexican men's national teams. Plus, much more. It's the best of the beautiful game, with all the beautiful names, like Messi, Mbappe, Ronaldo, Rapino, and Pulisic. Be part of the excitement as champions are crowned and history is made. The world's game lives here on Paramount+. Plus. Visit ParamountPlus.com to start your free trial and stream every match live. Let's take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Verna Law, a boutique law firm in intellectual property, including patents, trademarks, and copyrights. Verna Law's clients are largely small businesses and startups, and they focus on all aspects of intellectual property from protecting brands to inventions to artistic works. Verna Law's managing partner, Anthony Verna, is also the host of the Law & Business podcast, which you should definitely check out. With more than 60 episodes interviewing a wide variety of intriguing figures about intellectual property, copyrights, startups, and much more. You can also find Anthony Verna on Twitter at AVernaLaw, where he also tweets about soccer, by the way. Or go to the website, vernalaw.com. Thank you very much to Verna Law for sponsoring this episode. It's been an incredible group, and they were at their best at the 2019 Women's World Cup. They never even trailed in a game at that World Cup. Very different, obviously, from this tournament. Um, and 
you know, once again, the reigning Women's World Cup champion will not win the Olympic gold medal. That's what has always been the case. And it is sort of a fascinating stat that's not a coincidence, I don't think, at this point, because there's so many examples. But to me, that is a reminder, if you're the coach of the reigning Women's World Cup champion, you are you need to fight the urge to take a team that has too many of the holdovers, in my opinion, because you're asking for a letdown. And it's the same type of thing that happens in the men's game. Like when Yogi Love took the team he took with Germany, the 2018 World Cup, and you know, they're the reigning world champions, they go out in the group stage, too many old players that got stuck with. And this isn't even isolated to those couple of particular teams. This is a trend, like a documented trend. And, and I just would like, I would like to see a coach have the guts to, to do that in, in the effort to win, knowing the past. And then my other question for you, Christine, and this is a tough one here. So uh -oh. you gave me a tough one earlier on naming who the next coach should be. <laughs> So this is my opportunity is Jill Ellis had these documented situations over time where the veteran U.S. players didn't like her, even wanted her removed, did not succeed in that. And they still won two straight World Cups under Jill Ellis. Vladko was wanted by all the veteran players and he kept most of the veteran players on the team. Is it better to have, for, for success's sake, to have the tension between the coach and the players than to have a coach who all the players love? Um, I think that's really hard because I feel like they're, you're not really going to get an across-the-board, um, unanimous sort of management style for every player, no matter what, right? Like, some people need to be kissed, some people need to be slapped. Um, I think that if anything, Jill Ellis kind of created this phenomenon where it was like they all banded together and maybe the bond between players was even stronger uh, in spite of her, um, which they all kind of cop to where they're like, you know what, like we were winning no matter what. We didn't really care um, what was going on with her, what she said, how she did it, um, which I mean, kudos to them for being able to sort of traverse that. Um, I can't imagine it's the healthiest um, mental state to be in consistently for that duration of time um, under the same manager and just to have to deal with that. But um, they certainly did the whole like lemon lemonade thing. I don't know if maybe that turnover or the stark contrast between Jill Ellis and then Vlaco has sort of... Um, made them a little bit too comfortable where they were kind of like, oh, sigh of relief. Like, I don't see that, though, for them as competitors, right? Like, they're all very fiery personalities. They like winning. They like being dominant. They like having that role. So to me, I just it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And I can't make it match up with, you know, like manager to player just sort of rapport. Yeah, it, it's. It's a tough question, I, I think, to answer. I don't know the answer. I mean, it like, 
the players had a lot of respect for the day-to-day work that Blackco has done with them. Um, it seemed to pay off heading into the tournament, and then came the tournament itself. Like, I, I, part of me even wonders if there's something we just we're not aware of that was happening behind the scenes, this yeah. tournament. And, I mean, and maybe it's being in a pandemic. And, and There certainly and is like, like pandemic. There certainly still is like the U.S. soccer equal play, equal pay argument yeah. that's happening. That that probably forever going case, um, even during this, that like recently statements were issued. So there's certainly things happening in the background. I don't doubt that there are things that we haven't yet seen surface, but um, I think that we have a team of fairly straight shooters. So someone is going to make a very telling comment. Um, if not now, then beyond the bronze match, um, that should be a bit more illuminating. I think yeah, I, we've just that- been working at like a disadvantage, I think, even with just like the pressers and in terms of media, not physically being there and taking sort of these closed sessions, um, Q and A's and whatever, um, that's made this tournament a little bit different, I think, in terms of just like gleaning any insight. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, here's a question from Jason Chevron. Thoughts on Vlatko's sub choices and the line change tactic throughout the tournament. Um, it was a little weird, I thought, you know, like it it seemed like I understand that it's hot and it's humid over there, but... I thought there was less continuity than there could have been just the way the like to to have certain players like not in the 18 like Dahlkamp or not even the 18 today or 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 just like the only person who seemed to play every game was Sam Mewis or I'm sorry um Julie Ertz like, I mean, Julie is that, that was it. absolutely integral to that team's function, whether or not it's good or bad. Like she's sort of that linchpin that we need, which is absolutely evident no matter what. Um, I don't I don't disagree with leaving Dahl Kemper out of the UTN today. Honestly, I have no real issue with that. Um, I have more qualms with just Vlaco's substitutions for some reason needing to be all at once. Yeah. Like what, what are, I mean, why not make <laughs> changes slowly so that way perhaps it wouldn't have been as cataclysmic as it was. Um, probably would have made, um, to, to your point, Mewis substitution earlier. Um, stuff like that, that I certainly have issue with. Um, but but outside of that, it just, yeah. Like, is it necessary to, like, essentially change the entire front line in one fell swoop? I just, to me, no. Why would you do that? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's five subs allowed in this in this tournament for each team. If you go into extra time, a six. Um, and yet... Yeah, so the substitution patterns were odd, uh, I, I thought, throughout. And even Ertz is kind of crazy. Like, at the very start of the tournament, she had just started playing again because of an injury that she'd had the last couple of months. Yeah. And we were told that they said maybe she's fit for 30 to 45 minutes, and then she plays every, every minute. Every single minute of every <laughs> single game thereafter. 
and and you're like oh so she's that indispensable um i i never like sam us had a slightly better game against the dutch but she overall in this tournament just didn't seem to be the player that we'd gotten used to seeing um she was very spotty yeah for sure i mean game over game but also just within individual games it was not the sam Mewis that we're used to being able to rely on yeah so i mean and, and that's someone who you're going to be totally building around you know she's i think 28 um over the next couple of years so i am very curious to see what rapina was talking about like is this it for for lloyd rapino um some of the players in their 30s um and how's that process going to work out like i I think whoever like whoever the next coach is if it's flatco maybe it'll still will be if it's not if it's a totally new coach then i think that increases the chances even more that the younger guard comes in i i i don't think you should have too many players in their 30s for major tournaments and i think this was a very kind of old u.s team that didn't get the job done yeah i i just think that um history has sort of dictated that you know we keep these players because why wouldn't we like we've won with them we we've never really deviated it's been consistent it's been predictable um and now we're kind of hitting that wall where it's like okay like we don't have that anymore and things are starting to fall apart um what do we need to change we certainly need to start bringing the youth more which we should have been doing all along truly but um we can't, you know, no time machine, no, no DeLorean for us to hop in to, to change that at this point. And I'm surprised we didn't see Katarina Macario more in this tournament. Yeah. The young players that were there haven't really gotten to play very much. Um, you know, even like Jill Ellis played Mal Pugh a lot in the 2016 Olympics. So I like it's that part's a little mystifying to me. Here's a question from... N-A-O-Y-A, now ya, uh, on Twitter. Do you think the U.S. women's national team would benefit from sending more players to top European clubs or would integration between MLS and NWSL clubs have any benefit? I guess the question there essentially is should more U.S. players be playing in Europe? There were a few over the last year. There there were a few over the last year, and I think that one COVID and also some of the disruptions with NWSL had sort of forced that. But I I honestly think that um, irrespective of how turbulent and sometimes uh, extremely questionable decisions that have been made within NWSL, um, we still kind of had the leg up on sort of the international women's game. Um, of all the leagues only because again, like the U S women have been dominant and we had them all over here for the most part. Um, we got to see some of them go over there and play and like the super league. Um, and I think that, you know, many of them didn't get a lot of the same minutes or quality playing time that they had here in the U S. So, I mean, maybe that has impacted some of them in some way too. Um, a lot of them came back to us injured. So um, not to say that that couldn't have happened, you know, sticking around at in within the U S but 
I don't think there's the same contrast, I think, to be drawn. And I think where he was going with this is sort of the argument um, going back to the U.S. men's team of like, you know, send our youth away and let them come back. Um, it's never been that way for the U.S. women because it was always the inverse. It was flipped. So, you know, the U.S. women were winning. We were good. Our programs, our investment, our time was different than the investment being made elsewhere. And that is what we're seeing now is that those gaps are closing. So, um, yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's the same. It is interesting to me, though, that, you know, several U.S. women's national team players went to Manchester City this past year. And, you know, you had Rose Lavelle, you had Sam Ewis, Dahl Kemper. And they got a little ways into the Champions League tournament, but got kind of obliterated by Barcelona, uh, which ended up winning Champions League and has a lot of the Spanish national team players. And that, to me, was potentially an interesting sign, right? Like, I, I do imagine Jill Ellis might be saying right now, how, you know, how do you like me now? Because what she did achieve by winning back-to-back -back World Cups, you know, it, it that looks, you know, slightly more impressive based on how this U.S. team has per performed in this tournament. Yeah, but I think that that though, without context, is super problematic because the U.S. women beating up on teams that essentially didn't have the same network support funding training where you even have players like i don't think people realize half of the time that some of these like club teams and and leagues these these women have other jobs more right. often than not they're not just professional athletes um even for like juventus women they're still not it's 2021 they've been playing they're still not recognized as professional athletes within Italy by their governing bodies. So, and that's not coming till 2022. That also means that they have none of the protections, none of the insurance, none of the uh, time off allowances and otherwise. Um, so when you look at the development of other national team programs, you have to take that into mind that it's not, it's not a one-to-one -one thing. Um, yes, that, that doesn't mean that there weren't women in the U.S. that are U.S. players that have been standouts that weren't also doing two jobs when NWSL was super shaky. Um, but I think we're starting to gravitate farther and farther away from that as like being the accepted general model um, across the board. And so that's contributing, I think, to some of the level of play elsewhere and then also here. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, I, and I realize we're sort of starting to move a little away from the, the, the original question, but like teams, like I think Sweden has been the best team that we've seen in this tournament. And so I, I kind of think if that is how, how you, you know, that we'll see, but like, I, I kind of think Sweden should win the gold. We'll, we'll find out. Um, and but I also think Spain, France, Germany are three teams that weren't even in this tournament that might be able to beat the U.S. right now <laughs> or this U.S. Oh, yeah. team. <clears throat> this specific U.S. team, I would, I would if, if I had to, yeah, no, I, France, I think, would be extremely dominant. You know, um, and so that is going to make the next couple of years, I think, very interesting. 
Um, and the NWSL has to step up its game too. Like I, I think it's very obviously we've seen it's possible for a team of players, mostly from the NWSL to win world cups. Will that continue to be the case, especially as leagues like the English league continue to get more television money and can spend yeah. it on better players and including some American players, I would think. So um, all this is stuff that's interesting to talk about. And yet, you know, when I come back to it, the feeling right now is just, I think, sadness and surprise that this U.S. Olympic experience and performance hasn't been what anyone expected it would be. Yeah, I it's going to be a bit before we can probably process it. I'm going to need a sad nap or two, um, probably less coffee for the rest of the week. I think I've probably had my allotment for any physical human being who should still be upright. Um, it's, it's a lot. Um, I feel for them, but um, honestly, part of it is like, we just, we didn't perform. Yeah. Uh, there is one more game, obviously, bronze medal game. This U.S. team, I think, will want to win a medal. Um, and you and I will be back for that, at least to talk a little bit about that. Maybe not as long as we did for this episode. But Christine Cupo, thanks as always for joining me. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I want to thank Christine Cupo as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. We'll be back soon this week. We've got interviews. We've got the bronze medal game. We'll see you next time. 